Today's Ag Spotlight episode is sponsored by Energrow. Energrow's oilseed pressing system helps farmers crush their feed costs. The easy way to make fresh, homegrown, high-quality meal, plus expeller-pressed oil right on the farm. The fully automated Turnkey Crush Pro is easy to set up and run 24-7. To learn more, go to energrow.ca. And welcome to North American Ag Spotlight. I'm Chrissy Wozniak, and I'm honored today to be speaking with the Dairy Cattle Behavior and Welfare Specialist from the Department of Animal Sciences at Washington State University. Her research career began at Texas A&M University, where she investigated the impact of transport on cattle stress levels and was awarded her PhD in 2012. Since then, she's authored over 17 peer-reviewed publications in prestigious academic journals. She's also regularly featured in Trade Press discussing recent scientific breakthroughs. I'd like to welcome Dr. Amber Adams-Progar. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Christy. It's it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your work? Oh, yes. So I'll start out with, I'm originally from Wisconsin. Um, You know, I've got got dairy in my blood from the get-go. So I grew up on a small dairy farm. Um, really involved in animals. Like that was my passion. It's just working with animals. And it was, uh, it was such a joy. Like I just, I learned so much, you know, I did FFA and 4-H, you know, and, and got involved in all sorts of youth organizations working with animals. And uh, right when I was starting to get old enough, right, to really get involved in the nitty gritty besides, you know, shoveling manure, right? <laughs> uh Grandma and grandpa, it was their dairy farm. They they decided that they um, had to sell out, right? And so I was pretty devastated because I was excited to get involved in more of the business part of it. And so uh, when I was, it was a couple of years after that, I asked my mom if I could, you know, buy a heifer calf and raise her up and milk her out. And she said, no. So that was, <laughs> that was that. But <laughs> Instead, this is a side story, but instead she said I could have, you know, two rabbits. Uh, but by the time I graduated, right, as a senior in high school, I had over a hundred. So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, you know, I just, I loved working with animals so much. And, you know, I, I started out pre-vet, uh, you went to River Falls in Wisconsin and, and I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a veterinarian. That's what I always wanted to do. And I took an animal behavior class and that changed everything for me, right? Wow. I, I never knew that that was even a field of study that I could I could look into, right? So I told my mom and dad, I'm not even going to apply to vet school. This is what I want to do. I want to go to graduate school. I, I want to make a difference. I want to work with farmers. And, you know, I just, I want to figure out how we can improve quality of life for our animals that we use um, and also provide a better product, right? Like it's, it goes hand in hand. So uh, that's where I started out, you know, looking at animal behavior. Um, Unfortunately, at that time, there weren't a lot of, you know, graduate schools or programs where you could look at behavior and livestock. So I had to settle for lizards. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I studied lizard behavior uh, for my master's and then ended up working on my PhD, like you said, at Texas A&M and uh, worked with dairy cattle and just never turned back like that. It was very apparent that that's what I was meant to do was to look at dairy cattle behavior, figure out 
what we could do to make things better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I say things, I mean management practices, right? What kind of management practices could we improve to help our livestock be healthier, um, to help them, you know, exhibit behaviors that are, are normal for them, right? And ultimately that produce better. So uh, in a nutshell, that's that's what our program here is all about. Right. Wow. That's really cool. So, um, so are there in your research, um, that, uh, that you've done over the years, um, have you figured out, are there actually reliable ways to measure stress, stress in cattle? That's an excellent question. I, that, (laughs) you know, the, the ultimate goal, right. Is, is to figure out what are those reliable indicators? Because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence out there, you know, when we look at things like cortisol, right? I'm sure you know a lot of a lot of people listening to this can relate. You know, we hear about cortisol and stress in humans all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the idea being that as you're stressed, your cortisol concentrations go up, and your immune system takes a hit, right? Your immune system, uh, its efficiencies decrease. So you know, in cattle, for example, it's it's the same concept. Uh, one thing, though, is that cortisol can be released whether you experience a good stress or a bad stress. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, right? <laughs> uh, what do you mean by good stress, right? Because they think, oh, there's there's only there's just stress. Uh, that's not the case. So, I'll give you an example. We're here, in Washington State, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Washington State University's mascot is a cougar. So, with that context. Uh, if I were out to take a run, right, I was running through the woods and I'm getting exercise, right? I'm putting stress on my body. That is a good stress, right? That's that's what we would call like you stress, okay? That stress is good. Ultimately, it helps the body, right? Right. Now, if I'm running through the woods and a cougar jumps out and starts chasing me, that would be distress. That would be bad stress. Right. And in that case, uh, there's definitely a big difference between the two, but your body can't recognize those differences, right? Stress, it releases cortisol and it affects you, just as in cattle. So when we look at, well, can't we measure cortisol, right? In your Mm -hmm. blood, for example, you can, but you're measuring stress in general. When really what we want to get down to is distress, right? I mean, we we want to know how can we minimize distress at animals. Um, one of the best ways that we've figured out so far is, you know, behavior, for example. You know, if you look at an animal's behavior and how that changes, that could tell you a lot about what's what's going on with that animal, right? So, you know, eating behavior. If you if you even think about like a sick calf, for example. That's one of the things that you probably notice first is that they start to go off feed a little bit. Something's not quite right. Um, Our goal, though, is to use technologies. And I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. uh, Use technologies to actually detect distress earlier. So why, why wait, you know, until they're already showing symptoms? Is there a way that we could detect it sooner? Um, But when it comes back to your question about reliable indicators, mm-hmm. you know, we're still working on it. Behavior obviously is a very good indicator um, with the caveat 
that <laughs> cattle in particular are prey animals, right? right? And they don't want to show uh, vulnerability. And so by the time they're actually showing behavioral changes, sometimes they've already been sick, for example, for a while or been under stress for a while. So that's one of our, our difficulties. Uh, we are looking at, looking at other uh, blood components that we can actually measure, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I've worked on a couple of studies where we're looking at the immune system. So if there's certain parts of the immune system that we can measure in blood, that would tell us, okay, this animal is experiencing stress and it's affecting their immune system. Uh, that, that could be beneficial. So right. it's a tough question because we're not, yeah. we're not quite there, but that's why we're working on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's so fascinating. Um, so how are those technological advances in dairy management impacting cattle behavior and well-being then? You bet. So, uh, yeah, you obviously my experiences with dairy, but I'm sure other livestock species have their own uh, technologies that they could look at. But, you know, in, in dairy, we use systems, right? So activity monitors that typically were developed for heat detection, right? Super helpful because instead of someone having to, you know, visually assess animals or, or whatnot, they can use technology to help, mm-hmm. essentially send them alert on their phone saying you need to check these animals, right? Uh, because we have that technology already, they started to build in a uh, part of a, you can look at behavior in re- regards to sickness. So instead of just getting an alert about a cow that might be in heat, you can now get some alerts that say, you need to go check this cow. We think she might be sick, uh, which is, great, right? (laughs) Um, Now, obviously, these technologies could be kind of pricey, right? It takes money, obviously, to to put them on your farm. Our goal, at least in my lab, is to say, okay, if a farmer or a rancher invests in this technology, we want to make sure that they get the best bait for their buck, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that all of the data and information this farmer can get, he gets, he or she gets, right? And they can use that to their advantage. Um, So one of the areas we're working on right now is it's, it's nice that these technologies could give you a sick alert, but it doesn't tell you exactly what to look for, Mm -hmm. right? It, It just says you need to go check this animal. It could be sick. One area we're working on right now, dairy cattle, is uh, digital dermatitis or lameness, right? right? So that we can say, okay, are we able to detect, you know, the onset of digital dermatitis, for example, where you could get an alert on your on your phone that says, "Go check cow two seventy two, she might have digital dermatitis." Wouldn't that be awesome, right? right. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because now when you think about labor, you can focus in and say, okay, I know that I need to go check her feet Mm -hmm. um, instead of trying to run through the whole list of what could be wrong. Um, So we, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of hope and a lot of, um, a lot of ideas. Another idea along with digital dermatitis is also looking at a thermographic imaging. So we're just finishing up a study on that where we're saying, okay, cool. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and to take it one step further. So if you think about someone that's milking or walking the pens, right, they could 
use thermographic imaging to detect, is there something wrong with these, you know, this hoof or this foot? Right. Uh, in the parlor, for example, what if you could do that? But what if, now this is, these are crazy ideas, right? Mm-hmm. These are, you know, those are the golden stars that we're trying to shoot for. But what if you could make it automated where they walk into the parlor and there's right. automatically a thermographic imaging that occurs on all their feet and reports back to you if someone looks suspicious. Oh, that would be amazing. What did it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's so, cool. I mean, those those are the things we're looking at technology-wise where we already have some of these tools in place. You know, why not take it a step further? Right. Wow. So I know calf mortality is a serious issue. And I've read that your team's long-term goal is to lower calf mortality to 5%. And that's a significant improvement over the current rate of almost 8%. So how are you going about tackling this? Yeah, thank you. Uh, that I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, calf mortality is is one of the things that we're, we're dealing with, you know, as an industry. Um, there's so many factors that go into it that, you know, it's tricky, right? Mm-hmm. The one factor that we're kind of keyed in on is housing in particular. So you think about a calf, especially, you know, in the dairy industry, a premium calf, and you say, okay, during that time frame, especially those first, you know, couple of weeks, first month, right? They're, they're very susceptible to disease. Uh, they're also very susceptible, though, to changes in temperature, right? Mm-hmm. So as their environment changes, that has a greater impact on them. When you think about a calf, you know, we have, you know, we have nutrition plans that we follow and we say, okay, for this calf to grow like I, I need it to, uh, I need to provide, you know, this much milk, for example, this much grain. Well, that's the energy that we expect that calf to need. But when there's unexpected changes in temperature, for example, that calf then has to divert more energy to maintaining body temperature rather than growing. And that's that's the last thing we want, right? Um, and on top of that, uh, there's the health component too. So more energy that's converted to just trying to maintain their body temperature means that there's also less energy available to fight off any uh, potential pathogens or disease. So we're looking at both both ends of the spectrum. You know, especially those new calves are extremely um, or more highly susceptible to uh, changes in temperature. So we're looking at both heat stress and cold stress. Uh, on the cold stress uh, side, we're looking at things like calf jackets. You know, one of our studies that we looked at. I got to tell you, it was one of the most adorable studies <laughs> we <bet>. ever did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we we had a, a bunch of little Jersey calves, right? So oh. <laughs> Jersey calves, <laughs> um, and we put jackets on them, right? So mm. Jersey calves and jackets. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's as, that's as cute as baby goats in pajamas, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we had uh, Jersey calves and jackets, and we were looking at some Jersey calves without jackets. I said, okay, what difference do these jackets make? You know, especially in those first couple of weeks of life during winter. Now, I have to be honest, for our study, you know, winter in Washington, at least that winter was nowhere near, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> winter in northern Wisconsin. Right. Uh, it still got very cold, though. And 
based on what we saw, you know, we were looking at changes in calf body temperature. You were looking at differences in calf behavior, uh, drinking behavior, for example. Um, based on what we saw, you know, with growth and all of those pr- other parameters, we didn't see a big difference. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that that's because we didn't have such a harsh winter, right? right. Mm-hmm. I think that calf jackets, you know, if there's a farmer that's considering them, I think they definitely can't hurt, right? It's mm-hmm. a matter of, is it worth the investment? And I guess it depends on how many jackets you have to buy, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, for our study, we didn't see differences, but I've seen a lot of success with calf jackets in harsher climates, right? right. Where, especially like right now, I know there's a cold wave coming through. You know, farmers are getting pretty hit pretty hard with wind chills and native 50. And, and, yeah. You know, temperatures like that, I think that, you know what, anything you could give that calf to help them, do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, now on the side of heat stress, you know, we're looking at housing, for example. So we looked at two different housing systems. Um, and this is a paper that actually just got published uh, last year. Okay. And we actually looked at, you know, we had calves that were the traditional uh, hutches and the calves that were in a three-sided barn that had uh, stalls, right? So they had a roof over their head uh, and then they had individual stalls. So we looked at, okay, looking at airflow, uh, ambient temperature, humidity, what are the environments these two different groups of calves experience? Mm -hmm. And then with that, how does that affect their behavior, their um, growth, and then uh, their body temperature, right? So we looked at all those, all those, and ultimately, you know, do we see differences in uh, instances of disease, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things we noticed was that, you know, calves that were, you know, these stalls, they, they, they had more airflow go through, right? So if you think about a barn compared to, you know, if a calf in a hutch only has the hutch, mm-hmm. there's, there's very little airflow usually going through those hutches, right? You yeah. can open up the sides sometimes or the back, or sometimes there's vents on the top, but getting airflow through there can be pretty tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, our hutch calves actually had an outdoor area too. Um, so that helped, right? That helped them a lot where they could come out. But we did see, you know, hutch calves had higher body temperatures. So they were exposed to hotter environment um, being outside uh, in the hutches versus in the stalls of the barn. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and ultimately it seems, you know, calves that were, in the stalls seem to do a little bit better um, than ones that were in a hutches on on multiple levels. Right. Right. Um, There's still, I mean, we still want to look into a little bit further. We ultimately, the goal is not for us to tell a farmer how to house their calves. Our goal is to say, you need to do what's best for you and your farm. So we're going to help you figure out how to make that work the best we can, right? right. So yeah. if you're a farmer that's using hutches, I'm not saying ditch the hutches, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay, what can we do? You know, there's been studies out there that say if you prop up the back of the hutch, for example, that helps with airflow. Yeah, so that makes there's, sense. Right? There's yeah. tricks that we can use to help make, you know, different environments work for the calf. Mm-hmm. We just need to figure out what those are 
and then share those. And that's another part of what we do. It's not just about research, it's about extension, right? 70% of my job is extension. And that's literally going out, asking farmers, what keeps you up at night, right? right like, yeah. literally, I mean, as blunt as it gets, <laughs> yeah. what are those issues that keep you up? Okay, what can we do at WSU to help figure those out, right? What can we do to help you? So I come back, I go to the researchers, I go to my lab um, and my colleagues' labs, and I say, we have a problem. Here's what it is. What can we do research-wise to try to figure this out? Right. And then that's take incredible. our results back. So, yeah. yeah. Wow, that is that is so fascinating. Um, yeah, your, your group also re- received funding from the dairy industry to investigate ways that digital dermatitis um, affects cow behavior and to identify the most effective treatment. So you spent two years following over 200 cows. Uh, can you tell me what you learned from this study? Uh, well, I mean, I learned a lot. I saw a lot of feet, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 200 cows over two years, that's a lot of feet, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, but no, we... We use one of our one of those heat detection activity monitors, right, to look at behavior. And we said, okay, for cow that has digital dermatitis and a cow that doesn't, right, that has healthy feet, what behavioral differences do we see between the two groups? Right. And I have to tell you, one of the key findings that we had was related to eating behavior. So when we talk about lactating cows. What is it that we want them to do with their day? Well, we want them to spend 50% or more of their day uh, resting and ruminating, right? And then we want them to eat. Obviously, they have to go get milk. They have to drink water. They have to, right? But when we looked at cows that had digital dermatitis, they spent 72 minutes less per day eating than cows that had healthy feet. Um, and so that that really struck us, right? Because yeah. we thought, wow, if you if you think about all the the feed that cow is missing out on, right? Mm. That she's not intaking because for whatever reason, you know, she doesn't want to go to the feed bunk and eat as much, uh, or visit the feed bunk as much. How is that affecting you know her milk production? Uh, how you know it, it, it opens up a lot of other questions, right? Because yeah. 72 minutes uh, over an hour, I mean, that's that's a big difference. Um, Definitely, wow. Yeah, and then on top of that too, you know, we saw some some differences in uh, what we would call high activity. Mm-hmm. So that would be you know activity related to uh, trying to identify heat in, in in cows. We saw that cows not surprising, that had digital dermatitis, spent less time being highly active, which means that now you have a confounding factor, right? So Mm. it's already hard enough to detect heat in cows, but now you're adding to that that they're displaying less estrus-related behavior or heat-related behavior because of digital dermatitis. Wow. yeah, it was yeah. it was a That's pretty amazing. pretty interesting study. <laughs> I guess, yeah. And and you've hosted a number of workshops and training events where the practical outcomes of your research are provided to the ag community. So, yep. how does someone find out more about these? 
Yep. Uh, so we're working right now, I'm working on updating my website, uh, my webpage through the animal sciences department. Uh, we, there's a lot of our things get posted out, um, particularly through, you know, dairy newsletters and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one example is we do have a WCU dairy newsletter that people can sign up for. I mean, anyone could go online and sign up for it. Um, and it's a collection of articles that, you know, different dairy researchers in, in our uh, department, you know, put, throw together and kind of lay some things out there of, okay, here's what's going on in the lab. Uh, I'm sure you, you're not super interested in the highly technical, you know, jargon that we have. Here's the take-home messages. Here's the stuff you really need to know, right? Yeah. Um, so, but that's how we try to get word out. Sometimes, though, it's me making a phone call. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but we, you know, because we've worked in areas too, you know, with like pest bird management, mm-hmm. um, which is a big hot topic for a lot of people too, uh, because we're talking about the best way to minimize the damage that pest birds cause. Yeah. Um, but doing it in a way that is sustainable, right? And envir- more environmentally friendly, socially acceptable, you know, um, all, all of those things. So we've had some workshops where it was so neat because we presented different options, right? For farmers mm-hmm. and said, here's some different options you might want to try uh, for pest bird uh, deterrence on your farm, right? And so we had uh, a research group come out that had a drone and so they use a drone to scare off and deter pest birds, right, from coming back to the right. farm. So they demonstrated that. They had, uh, we had a falconer come out. So a professional falconer, right? Yeah. And so he had his bird out and showed him how this would work. Um, we had a gentleman that has, uh, he builds nest boxes for American kestrels and for owls. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that in uh, vineyards and orchards, you would put these nest boxes up and you would attract native raptors to your farm and wow. it would keep pest birds away. It doesn't oh, get much amazing. more environmentally friendly than that, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so smart. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but anyways, uh, so those are some of the wa- workshops that we did related to, to those activities is, okay, here's some different options. Here's the people that are doing these things, um, you know, meet them, talk to them, figure out if this is something that you want to try. Once again, we're not here to tell you what to do. We're here to give you your options, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then there's also our on-farm work with uh, safety. So mm-hmm. that's obviously a hot topic as well. And so you know, we, we developed this uh, leads training, we call it uh, Leaders Enabling Advanced Dairy Safety. And so we essentially, it's a train the trainer program and it's all focused on just the safety aspect of working with dairy cattle, this example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all focused on data. So we took, we have data from Washington state uh, labor and industries that says, you know, here's the most common animal related injuries that occur on dairies. Mm-hmm. And we took that out and we said, okay, here's the top five we bring awareness to, right? These are the top five. (laughs) And then we say, how can we try to avoid or minimize our risk for these injuries? Um, But 
I'm talking your ear off so much. Oh, this is great. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. I just love your passion. Yeah. And I guess that uh, our my next question is uh, is about animal extremism. So it yeah. has become a real problem in the dairy industry, and yeah. um, and as it is for most most in agriculture that deal with animals. Uh, what advice do you give to producers about handling this? Uh, my first piece of advice is to obviously know your resources, right? And so to, to know if you're ever approached or uh, feel like you're being interrogated or you get into a situation like that, um, one, one thing is to know your resources and it's better to be proactive than reactive. And so one example would be, you know, if there's opportunities, um, like in the dairy industry, you know, some, some associations will offer, you know, like, uh, media training, right? Mm-hmm. Where you could kind of learn a little bit of how to handle those situations. Take them up on that, right? Be yeah. prepared so that if you get in a position like that, you you know how to handle it, right? Um, that's that's a good piece of advice, I think. Um, on top of that, we, you know, sometimes there's things that happen that are unpreventable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when we talk about even human safety, right? You know, things mm-hmm. can happen. Uh, I think that it's important that we help share a message about how we as an industry are trying to minimize those risks as much as possible. Yeah, and so even, even with animal welfare, right? Um, and animal well-being, it, there's so many messages that aren't getting out there and it's, it's tough. So I'll give an example. When I was in Wisconsin growing up and everything, you know, uh, I, I loved, you know, June is dairy month. Right. And mm-hmm. so June was like my favorite month. It still is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I loved June dairy month and I would always help out because, uh, during we every County pretty much had this breakfast on the farm. Right. And so you would go to a dairy and you would have, it was open to the public. You would have breakfast, you'd meet the farmer. Um, it, it was, it was just awesome. Right. Like I can't, it was such a great opportunity for the public wow. to see firsthand. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I moved to Washington state, <laughs> I, uh, I, I started in June and I was all pumped up for June dairy month. And I said, where's the nearest breakfast on the farm, right? And they said, uh, what? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> said, yeah. So I explained what, what I was talking about. And they said, well, we, we can't do that here. And so when I, when I started to dig deeper, I guess one of the take-home messages too for farmers and, and ranchers and you know, livestock producers is that I, I use a scenario of, more and more people, especially the general public, is becoming more and more detached from agriculture mm-hmm. uh, and livestock production. So part of the problem is that they have no firsthand experience. Right. And I think that we as an industry really need to work on giving them that firsthand experience somehow, right? Obviously, bringing them onto farm is, it is a liability. It is risk. That's the riskiest, right? but it's also the most impactful. Yes. So if you take, you know, a, a school children through a farm, you know, we do that at the WC dairy, we'll have school groups 
not right now because of COVID, but you know, we would have groups come through and you could teach the, the children, um, but as well, their, their, their chaperones, right? Their parents right. Uh, or the adults that are there. And you could say, this is what we do. And this is why we do it. You could field questions. You can, you know, I'll give an example. We had a school group come through and it was, there was a misunderstanding where um, they thought that what they saw on the udders in the milk parlor, right, was blood and it wasn't, right? It was iodine. And right. so <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, so, you know, like there's things like, cause they could have left that farm with this horrible image of, you know, this is what it's like. Right. And, and luckily we could have those conversations and say, no, it's not right. Um, what you're seeing that that's the, this is what, it, this is what actually is going on. It's actually helping the cow. Um, so right. that's a really good point. Yeah. Getting that message out is so vital. Um, and however you feel comfortable, you know, as, as you know, the farmers and ranchers and livestock producers, however they feel most comfortable, whether it's a virtual tour or if it's, you know, to, you know, wants things open up more, if there's a chance to even reach out to the community somehow, like right. any opportunities like that, take them. Um, I don't think that this is a good time for us to shy away from that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's great advice. So I have one more question for you. Uh, what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be forever remembered by our industry? Yeah, that, that is a pretty that, yeah, difficult question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that I would I want my legacy to be that you know Amber was an advocate for farmers and for animals you know like I ultimately I the exciting part right I I think what I really love about my job is that I love working with animals I appreciate animals I appreciate what they do for us right and I love working with farmers and I appreciate what they do for us and I have the pleasure of being able to work with these animals figure out what would make, you know, quality of life better for them. And I get to work with these farmers and help figure out what they could do to help make quality of life better for animals. And it makes their quality of life better too. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I really like about uh, a lot of the articles that I've read about you is that um, you'll, you'll outline the benefit to the cows and then you'll also do like a, what the farmer will save if they implement it. And you, you actually, you know, in a lot of cases I've seen real dollar amounts. And I think that's really cool because, you know, we can't just have, you know, airy fairy ideas. It has to impact the farmer. So I think that's really honorable and really, um, really important. Yeah. Thank you. No, I think it's important too. Right. Because Mm -hmm. it's, it really goes hand in hand, you know, and it's a win-win. And that's, that's another thing, you know, with we're the fact that, you know, we, we can make changes management wise that not only help our animals be better, do better, right. Live better, but then it also helps us as a, you know, keep our business going. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the perfect. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. But that's what I want. I want to be 
known as an advocate for farmers and for the animals. Right. And you know what? And for the workers as well, right? All of our employees that help us on our farms, um, you know, probably one of the best things we can do for them is help keep them safe and all, you know, make each, you know, try to minimize risk as much as possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And, uh, and thanks to everybody who's watching or listening. And if you want to learn more, you can go to northamericanag.com slash dairy wellbeing, and the links will be provided in the notes below as well. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And have an awesome day. Yeah, you too. The way we conduct business in agriculture has endured a drastic change. Our handshake industry has traditionally been face-to-face, but with the cancellation of in-person events and farm shows, everyone has had to adapt. From farms to manufacturers to service providers, with a dizzying array of marketing and digital business choices, you need to make the right decisions or risk not being seen at all. If you need advice or a customized plan for your business, don't hesitate to reach out to me at chrissywozniak.com or chrissy.info because that's easier to spell, C-H-R-I-S-S-Y dot info. Don't risk not pivoting your business. Find the path that will take you into the digital space and be seen by our industry. Fastline Auctions, the ultimate destination for online farm equipment auctions. Looking to list equipment? Fastline Auctions knows farmers, and farmers have trusted Fastline for their equipment needs for over 45 years. With unmatched digital reach, and direct-to-farmer catalogs, they can find the right buyer for your equipment. Not to mention, they have the industry's lowest commission rates. And if you're looking for equipment to buy, you can bid with confidence. No buyer premiums, no reserves, just integrity. Fastline Auctions, your trusted platform for hassle-free, cost-effective farm equipment auctions. Visit fastline.com for more information. You can join us for a tour of the Fastline Auctions platform July 13th at 6.30 p.m., to register for this webinar, go to northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar. That's northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar to register now.